0: Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Dr. Tyra Sellers. Hi, Tyra. Hi. How are you? Oh, great. I'm good. I'm glad you were there. Sometimes I click over. I'm never sure.
1: Um, Oh, I'm here. I'm here.
0: (laughs) Good. That's the first part of the show. Uh, before we begin, could you start off by giving an introduction or a little bit about your bio
1: for our, our listeners? Sure. So I'm Kyra Sellers. I currently am the Director of Ethics at the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. So now is probably a good time for me to um, provide a disclaimer to the listeners that um, I am not here um, representing the BACB today. Instead, Um, Amanda was lovely enough to invite me on just to talk about my own thoughts and musings, so nothing that I say uh, on the podcast should be construed as the official position um, or opinion of the BACB, it's just my own stuff. Um, So I originally got my degree in philosophy, have a bachelor's in philosophy, uh, and then I went to law school because I thought that would be cool, and it wasn't, Um, but I finished, so I do have a law degree. Uh, And then I have a master's in special education, and I got my Ph.D. at Utah State University. And the whole time that I went to school, um, ever since community college, uh, I have always worked in this field. So I ended up – I mean, I kind of tried to leave a few times, right, philosophy and then law, but I ended up staying. Um, And I'm very happy that I did because I have had a a really amazing career working with incredible Uh, Families and clients and colleagues that I've had a chance to work with. So, thank you for having me on today.
0: Absolutely. And I I mean, I just have to kind of go back through a little bit of what you said. So, a bachelor's in philosophy, then law school, then master's in special ed, and then a doctorate at Utah State. Is that correct? Yes. That blows my mind. Um, Wow, I have so many questions. Today, we're going to talk about supervision primarily. I think, you know, that was our goal. But I wanted to ask about. Um have you found that having that law degree with what you're doing now um or in the roles that you've had has benefited you like has it complemented anything even if it wasn't the sole direction you wanted to go in
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, originally, so I, when I got my law degree, I was still really young. Um and honestly, if you asked me at that point working in um the the field of providing services for um, folks with unique and special needs, I would have said the benefit was that it legitimized me because I was young, I looked really young, but I had these cool, you know, JD letters behind my name. But um, with a little more perspective now and years of experience, certainly law school um, teaches you to take a very systematic approach, not unlike the approach that we take from a behavior analytic perspective. So um, I was a pretty good problem solver. I was pretty good at seeing both sides of the um, picture, and I think that has always been helpful. It certainly has been helpful just in terms of negotiating contracts, and um, I probably have always been a little bit more aware of my rights and other people's rights. Um, When I had my own business in California and worked primarily with school districts, I think my legal background and knowledge of special ed law certainly helped Um, when needed on both sides sometimes it helped with parents sometimes it helped with school districts in my current role It's really I wouldn't say it's critical because certainly I think someone could fill this role without a law degree But I certainly find it beneficial in terms of understanding some of the legal processes that we have to adhere to um, as a a body that grants um, certifications for individuals and then manages those. So, you know, I I understand due process, I can understand a lot of the legal documents that we have to read um, when they come in, either from a notifier or from a subject. So it's certainly helpful to me in my role right now, although I have the opportunity to, to work and consult with lots of amazing attorneys, including our own general counsel, Misty Bloom. Um, but it it just it makes communicating with attorneys a little bit easier because I do understand things um, I understand the terminology and things like that so so both in terms of uh, problem-solving and taking a systematic approach and then also just understanding the systems and the language
0: well it sounds like those combination of skills also I think contribute to making really effective super a supervisor I mean experience of course some trial and error I'm sure but problem solving, being systematic, and being aware of everyone's rights. So can you, um, can you go ahead and start uh, talking to us a little bit about supervision? Like what is it? How does it get started? Who gets to be a supervisor or kind of any direction you want to go in? But um, I think those are some questions that are kind of plaguing people in our field today.
1: Um, okay, um, you're giving me a lot of latitude, and that's really hard because there are so many amazing things to talk about. Um, I think the I think the first thing that requires some discussion in our field um, is what even is a supervisor or a supervisee, and what is supervision? Because I think for a while um, there was a narrow Sort of conceptualization of supervision. In that, I think many folks talked about supervision as applied to individuals while they were accruing their fieldwork experience hours that needed to be supervised, but sort of forgetting the idea that um, while we also supervise therapists now, usually they're RBTs, um, we also probably supervise or get supervision. Um, when we're board certified, even if we are already at the, the master's BCBA level, certainly BCABAs get supervision. Um, I have my PhD, and you do as well, and I know I certainly get what could be described as supervision. Sometimes it's um, over new tasks that I'm learning how to do, so it's really that traditional sense of someone supervising me, doing a thing that I can't quite do completely independently, but sometimes it blurs over into what might be defined more like mentorship or just some sort of um, consultative support. So I think that it would be beneficial for us to take a broader um, perspective on supervision and acknowledge that everybody needs it at every level of their career and everybody should be seeking it out. So I want to get your take on this, um, and I know that this is not supposed to be about you, but you've got a tremendous amount of experience, and I want to get your reaction to um, a scenario that someone shared with me, okay?
0: Oh, all right. (laughs) We'll try. Okay, good.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for indulging me. So I just want to hear what your reaction is. So um, a friend of mine who's a clinical director was talking to me, and they said that they had, at this point, just finished doing an interview with a brand-new BCBA, so someone who had just finished their master's program, just sat for and passed the exam, which is so amazing. And um, my, my colleague sort of asked them, well, tell me a little bit about what sorts of things you expect and need from a supervisor. And this brand-new, young, Um, newly-minted master's BCBA person said, oh, well, I'm a behavior analyst, a board-certified behavior analyst now. I don't need supervision. Okay, go. (laughs) Okay.
0: Um, Well, I kind of like you did, I would probably start with let's just back up on the definition of what I'm talking about with supervision. Um, because I think especially people who are or even I mean, I would say even myself or as things have, you know, evolved um, that we're going to need to define it. Right. Like, what does it look like? Who is it? And we think, oh, that's what I needed to get in order to sit for my exam. Right. I think that that I could understand that line of thinking. So I'd start mm-hmm. there. clarify just to make sure that maybe it's not about our semantics. And if it is, then we can I could reframe my question. And um, that would give some perspective to that person. But if that sentiment was the same of like, oh, I am a BCBA, um, you know, I would kind of share that part of like, that's an entry level kind of criteria, right? Like, and what we mean by having ongoing support and mentorship. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that, like you said, new situations that I might have some skills to do, but I'm not quite ready to do it on my own. And to be honest, I don't, I don't understand why people would want to do it on their own. Um, so if it's more of like perhaps being perceived as like a sign of like weakness, I would also clarify like, you know, that's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of greatness. And then I might re-ask that question later in the interview, or I might <laughs> say, this isn't the, the person that I'm looking for right now to work with me. But hopefully from our conversations, they'll have a little bit different perspective the next time they're asked that
1: question. Yeah, I love that. I love that you sort of take a functional approach, like, oh, maybe they're responding to a different understanding of my use of the term supervision. So, like, amazing that you give them the benefit of the doubt. Of course, when I heard that, my jaw dropped, and I was like, what do you mean you don't need supervision? We all need some kind of supervision. Um, But, yeah, I think that's a very well-thought-out answer, and I think um I, I wonder if that individual responded because that was sort of the picture that was painted for them when they were actually accruing field work experience hours like maybe that was the story that was sold to them that once you pass you're good to go and you just do everything on your own um i i don't know the answer to that but um but that that kind of floored me so i think I think us taking, like you indicated, a broader approach and conceptualization to supervision is critically important, and our, as supervisors, our behavior or mentors or coaches or whatever you want to call it, our behavior will will change depending on where someone is in their sort of career trajectory, so the kinds of things I'm going to do in supervision for someone early in their field work experience hours is different than I would for someone later on in their experience field work um, hours, that's going to be different than I would for um, someone who is a brand new BCBA, that's going to be different than I would for a PhD level person who's working here in the ethics department at the because that's the situation too, right? Like, I have people on my staff who are have the same certification level that I do, the same um, degree that I do, but there are still things that um, I can work and help develop in terms of their repertoire. So if we're mindful of that, then I think we're always sort of taking a functional approach to what someone needs to do the best job they possibly can for um, whatever the task is at hand wherever they are in their career path.
0: I know over the years, the definition official or the expectations and requirements of supervision have, I would say, continued to be improved or um, Mm -hmm. the criteria have been elevated. And I I say that as somebody who, um, when I was, you know, pursuing my BC ABA, the supervision requirements were very different. And I remember, um, just to show some compassion to maybe those newbies, I remember when I first, Um, was, uh, you know, got my BCBA, and uh, they were changing the criteria. It was going to be an additional, the way um, my university, Simmons, um, translated an additional semester of mentoring or supervision because the requirements were changing with the board, and Mm -hmm. I took all of my classes to finish my master's, so I took like 20 credits or something while working full-time so that I didn't have to meet the new requirements and get more mm-hmm. supervision. And now I like, I would slap myself for that, right? Like, why in the world <laughs> would I try to rush out of support? But it's that, that pressure of you know graduate school, the aversive conditions we're trying to escape. Um, and then, I, I mean, I'm fortunate, I guess, in my mind, I think, because I went straight, I did go a few months later into the PhD program, so I was like, well, I'm gonna mm-hmm. still get, believe me, supervised, mentored, coached, and supported. But it's like when you think about those motivations, um, they're very it was very skewed and it actually didn't work in my benefit in the long run. So um just to anyone listening, like, you know, it might be good to get out of your official requirements, but then I find we kind of crave that. So um once we once we're in the in the lines then, if you
1: will. Um and- Yeah, I just I I think that's a fair point, Amanda, that there are competing contingencies um to try to get done and if if we haven't done a good job as a field really communicating the critical benefits of high quality supervision and if most people aren't accessing high quality supervision then certainly some of those competing contingencies are going to win out you know like my ability to just be done
0: yeah definitely um Well, I think back to some of my supervisors and some of what great qualities that they had or the ones that they had in common. But, again, it's not my show today. It's yours. And so something I'd like to ask you is what are some qualities that you think make a great effective supervisor? And, again, that's pretty general. And then, I guess, more specifically, what were the things that were modeled for you that you found valuable that you tried to emulate in your own
1: practices? Um, Let's see. I think I think I'm going to have a hard time describing the general and then specific because I'm pretty sure the general things are driven from specific exemplars that people have provided for me, so I think one of the most critical um, initial sort of um, foundational, i guess um, requirements for successful supervision that I have both seen non-examples and incredible examples of is that um, supervisors need to take their supervisory activities as seriously as they do the activities that they provide for clients. So as um, as all-in as someone is to operate in the best interest of their client in doing assessments and treatment planning, and working with everybody on that individual's team, that same approach needs to be taken for supervision. I think a lot of people um, think of supervision as sort of perfunctory. It's just sort of an add-on thing that gets tacked on to what I'm already doing. But in fact, as a supervisor, it's as if you have multiple clients. You have your supervisee or trainee that you owe all the same duties of care to that you would to an actual client then you have that supervisee or trainee's client that you owe all of those duties to and if you're working in the real world you probably have your own caseload so in order for supervision to be as effective as it really needs to be it needs to start from a place of commitment to um, your trainee or your supervisee and providing you know excellent services for them the same way you would for a client Um, And I have experienced supervisors who um, did not take that approach, and it was sort of just check the box, we have to go through these motions. Um, And I have had the incredible honor of having supervisees who clearly valued me in exactly the same way they did um, every single client that they had ever worked with. And that comes through in so many different ways and sort of creates all of the, EOs for all of the other high-quality things, like following through, like setting clear expectations, like um, making sure that you establish um, a mutual relationship that is beneficial for both parties. This supervision is not sort of, you know, come and receive my knowledge and then walk away better. No, it's a two-way street. We're both going to learn. We're both going to make mistakes. Um And both people have to be all in. So I think if you have that, all of the other good stuff will come. If you don't have that, likely a lot of the good stuff will not come, like being organized, um, like being respectful and compassionate, like um, being willing to be wrong in front of your supervisees or trainees, like um, understanding that the only way that your supervisee or training is going to get better is for you to actively tact To describe some of your thought processes for how you arrived at a certain clinical decision or um, Something like that and then slowly shape away from that so instead of describing your thought process now You're asking them to do it and you're supporting them through it. Um, I think those are some of the most critical Critical aspects, but I think they all drive from a 100% passion for doing, for providing supervisory um, services in the highest possible quality.
0: It really resonates with me when you talk about building relationships and taking it very seriously as it's your, you know, as a primary duty, not as an add on one. And also that, like, again, that compassion and that that value in the relationship, saying you're wrong, all those kinds of things that make us humans and scientists. Um, But I I know that, you know, many people are assigned the role of supervisor in, you know, their positions or in their jobs, or maybe they're not, um, you know, given the choice of who they select as the people that they supervise. In those situations, I still think we can come out with some pretty great relationships. But do you have any advice to how somebody could try to establish a relationship like that or how they might go about trying to cultivate that um, in a situation that they didn't necessarily put themselves in?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I I really love that you brought that up. And it it immediately makes me think, like at first I was like, yeah, you're right, we often don't get – to choose but then you know most of us in our clinical work don't get to choose our clients either um, and we seem to most of the time be able to get around that you know this client might not necessarily be my quote-unquote favorite most reinforcing client ever but I'm still all in and here for the benefit of that client and will do everything and whatever it takes um, and so maybe it's just reminding ourselves to take that approach with our um, with our supervisees but you know, I think that you begin building that relationship in your very, very first meeting and, you know, being willing to say some of the things that you just said, like, um, hey, you're going to make mistakes and so am I, and I'm going to let you know when I'm wrong and or maybe you're going to identify when I'm wrong and let's talk about what that's going to look like. Um I think that it's important to find out a little bit about your supervisees. So, you know, I get that we have professional boundaries, but if I'm all business all the time, it's very difficult to be compassionate. So, you know, find out a little bit in terms of, um, you know, things that your supervisee or trainee likes. Um, what are their hobbies? Um I think that that goes a long way I think remembering every single meeting to check in with your trainee or your supervisee whether it's at the beginning or at the end you know something as simple as like okay Amanda thanks so much for meeting with me today for our supervision meeting as always I just want to check in am I giving you everything you need is there something I need to do different do you have some new interests that are developing like what can we do to keep making sure that we're doing the best job we can during supervision meetings. Um, I think those kinds of things will help in developing relationships um, with folks and keeping those relationships strong. Um, And I think, I really do think a lot of it goes back to that first meeting. So setting those expectations, talking about the fact that feedback is gonna happen, what it's gonna look like, um, and, demonstrating, you know, an actual interest in that person. Now, I will say sometimes issues develop in a relationship that you didn't foresee or couldn't predict or, um, you know, are just out of your control. And I think in those circumstances, you take a behavior analytic approach. If I did or said something in a supervision meeting with you that I, after that meeting, our relationship sort of changed and felt strained, uh, strained, I might go back to you and say, listen, Amanda, I need to do a little investigating. I, I'm not exactly sure what I did, or maybe I do know and I can just name it. I said this, and it seemed like your facial expression changed afterwards, and then our last couple of meetings have felt a little bit strange and um, uncomfortable to me, and I'm, I'm worried that I said something that offended you or hurt your feelings, and I know this isn't going to easy be, be easy to talk about, but can we have a conversation about this? So sometimes you just talk." to try to identify what were the contextual variables that produced that sort of change or uncomfortable situation and try to adjust it. And if it means I need to apologize, then I give a heartfelt apology. Even if I don't think I did anything wrong, if I did something that hurt someone else's feelings, I can still say, I'm really sorry that that's how what I said impacted you. And I certainly am going to do XYZ to try to not do that in the future.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot with our verbal behavior (laughs) and how what you're describing really comes down to being really thoughtful about that. Um, It's not saying, like, you know, you didn't read that article. You didn't come to our meeting on time, and now you're mad at me. It's more of, hey, remember, we set out these expectations, and we both agreed to have this commitment, and it feels like maybe you're not as invested as I am right now, and I want to see if there's anything I can do or what's going on. Right? That's a very – I remember, and I will share just quickly here, um, my first uh, official student that I was supervising and I was doing that through a university, and we were at odds. It was very clear. And um, I didn't know why, and we later kind of explored that and figured it out. But at one point, the university said, you know, you can, you can give her back and pass her on. We'll, we'll assign somebody else. We're, I think when we take that approach of seeing our supervisees as our clients, you know, we're not always the right consultant for every client. And I think absolutely that, that was the thought that I had. But I actually remember speaking to my father about it. And I said, hey, they, they said I can, you know, give her back or reassign this person. And my dad said, sure, you can do that. But who are you here for, yourself or her? And it was like, he's. A, I, we have a great relationship. So I took that to be coming from a very kind place. And I thought, you know what, it would be for my benefit, right? Like I'm trying to remove something I find aversive. And so I shifted my thinking and we, we learned a lot together. And um, we still have a relationship, a very positive relationship, me and that now um, BCBA has been certified for 10 years. So <laughs> some of that stuff, you know, you might feel like it's how, how are we going to get past something when there's conflict? And I really like how you articulated how we can shift some of our ver- verbal behavior and maybe reframe some of the concerns we have to still try to get to that resolution. So I thought that was really, really well put, and it connected
1: with my own experience there, Tyra. Well, thanks. And that was a total, like, dad advice win on your dad's part. So, um, you know, There is an article that um, some amazing colleagues of mine and I wrote, um, Linda LeBlanc and Amber Valentino, around strategies for um, detecting issues that are arising or present in the supervisory relationship that aren't really related to someone's behavior analytic repertoires but are sort of more like what we're talking about, interpersonal skills or Organizational management skills, and that article kind of walks folks through some things they can do to try to assess that situation um, and address some of those areas. so um, I don't you know it's certainly not comprehensive, but it might at least get folks thinking about things if they find themselves in that position.
0: Absolutely, and I can repost that and share the link for anyone um, who wants to access that article. Or I know you've published several articles. Um, one of the things that you had mentioned though too, is talking about finding your supervisees hobbies and um, yes maintaining that professional line but kind of learning a little bit about each other and something I know about you is or what I think I know about you is one of your hobbies is photography and and plant life or maybe they just maybe it's flowers and you like to capture them I don't know but you have amazing photos that I've seen of flowers and can you just tell me a little bit about that and
1: your hobbies Um, yeah yeah that's very kind of you Um, I don't know if it's a hobby it's more of a compulsion Um, and I have to sort of I have to manage um, my compulsion to take pictures of things in nature usually flowers or things like that um, because it can negatively impact um, my life so when I was working at Utah State University their campus is gorgeous and they have amazing plants and if I had a meeting across campus, I had to plan it in 15 minutes ahead of time to walk across campus because um, I was showing up late to meetings because I would get distracted by stopping and taking photos on the way. So um, when I travel with people, I have to say, like, look, if, if we're walking and you're talking to me and all of a sudden there's no one there, just keep going and I'll catch up with you. It's because I got stuck taking a picture of something somewhere. So um, you know, I, I'm not a photographer. I've never taken a photography class. I don't know anything about photography. I'm I'm 47, and so I am, as a, a mature adult, um, given a phone that has an amazing camera on it. I mean, mine's crappy, actually. I have a really old iPhone. I like the small one because I like to be able – I don't use a pop socket, and I like to be able to reach the whole screen with my thumb, so I'm just – Hoping every day that my poor like s keeps ticking and doesn't die on me, but so it has a moderately good camera. Um, but you know, like as a kid and a young adult, I didn't have access to a digital camera or a phone that could take pictures. Like that's some space age technology for me. Um, and I don't have to go buy film. I, like we, you and I were mentioning earlier um, that you took like a billion pictures of this one flower. And you can do that. It doesn't cost you anything. And then you get to sit there and delete the ones that were a little bit out of focus. So um, I just find myself compelled to stop and appreciate especially flowers. You know, they're like they're. They don't have, I don't know, they have some purpose. This is getting really meta. But they're gorgeous and they don't ask for anything. Um, And we walk past them so many times. And I don't care how bad of a day you're having. If you look at a gorgeous sunflower or some beautiful bougainvillea um, and the light is catching it just right, like your day, if you let it, will get better just by stopping and looking at something growing out of the ground for just a few seconds. Um, So it's sort of, I don't know, it started just as my way to appreciate things and then it kind of became a serious distraction that I had to manage. Um, But I I certainly have far more pictures of plants than I do of my own children or husband on my phone. So I'm guilty of that.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that, and I, I really appreciate kind of learning a bit about you and, and that compulsion, what drives you, but I'm also really sitting over here connecting because I'm like, oh, my gosh, for me, it's often rainbows, and I feel fortunate to live in a place where rainbows might be as frequent as flowers, and I was often, when I was working at a school as a, um, a an counseling position, I would be, you know, 10 minutes late, kind of reliably um, on certain days or if the, the weather was a certain way, and the principal would say, Amanda... Did you pull over to take a photo of the rain? And I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't driving and taking photos. And you know how beautiful they are without the power lines. And when you have to get them over the ocean, and um, it became this thing that was almost accepted. So I, I didn't, um, I didn't have to manage it so much. But I, but I do relate to that, and I do understand that. But I also find maybe the more powerful part is what you said and how you articulated it—that your day, no matter how bad it is can be a good day or if you let it it will get better so i think that kind of connects everything and i also think about when you're talking about the frequency of taking photos right we get an opportunity to become more fluent right we're getting so many more opportunities than we ever could before with different ways to take photos and and also now we have social media platforms where you can bring that joy to thousands of other people who are looking
1: at them so thank you for that (laughs) Yeah, and thank you for your rainbow photos. I've seen uh, any number of them, and I think I often post the sort of, like, gasping face um, emoji because that's always my reaction. Um, And I, I actually was thinking of you a few days ago because here in Colorado we have really hot, beautiful weather during most of the day, and then we get a lot of thunderstorms in the later afternoon. Um, and so we get a fair number of rainbows and I was driving and I saw this beautiful rainbow and I immediately thought of you and I looked around at all of the people driving and no one was paying attention to the rainbow. And I thought if Amanda was here, she would probably make me pull over and take a photo of this rainbow. <laughs>
0: I definitely would.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll you stop the pictures time. of
0: the rainbow. <laughs> yeah. You stopping and Smelling those flowers. We'll do it together. But, Tyra, I want to thank you again, or and I want to thank you again for joining. And um, our time already is is at at an end. But um, let's let's talk some more, and let's have you do another show in the future. I'll commit you now publicly. Um, <laughs> I
1: think that I think that I just got voluntold to do it.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite things to do is voluntold sometimes what, <laughs> where we should go. But I um, thank you again for joining us. And before we end our call and our discussion today, I want to give you an opportunity to mention any um, projects you're working on, any articles, or any other shout-outs that you might want to give.
1: Um, well, I would just like to take the opportunity to thank every single person from RBT to BCBAD out there who is Um, doing the good work to improve the lives of individuals and organizations, and thank you so much, and keep up the great work, everyone.
0: Oh, and thanks for all your contributions. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about Applied Behavior Analysis, you can visit www.behaviorbabe.com.